chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. And this, this message really just came out of my own reading this week. And I was in Matthew 5 on, might have been, well, early, early in the week. And uh, a particular part of it just caused me to have one of those moments where you stop and you, you dwell on something a bit longer. And that's the, the origin of what I want to share today. It's really simple. But sometimes whenever God speaks to us, that's, that is the case. It is pretty simple stuff that he needs to remind us of. Um, Christians have, have been described as people who make extraordinary claims about Jesus. And we do that if you listen to our songs, if you read our scriptures. We do make remarkable claims about who this guy was and who he also is. But Jesus also makes extraordinary claims about us. He says some pretty incredible things about his followers uh, through his, his own words recorded in the Gospels and through his word recorded uh, by the other New Testament writers. Here's a list of some of the things that Jesus says about his people. This list was put together by a guy called Rich Nathan. Uh, he he uh, picked out some of the ways that Jesus describes us. This should boost your self-esteem. If you have a worm mindset, you need to get rid of it. That whole idea of being a Christian means that you're some sort of useless wretch wallowing in the mud and you're not worth anything. Listen to what Jesus says about his people. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ, the children of God, a chosen people, the family of God, the flock of God, God's household, a holy nation, a holy people, a holy priesthood, a holy temple, the Israel of God, the people of God, priests, the temple of God. And that's only part of the list. Jesus says some pretty incredible things about his followers. And that gives us so much dignity and significance that we're not lowly worms, you know, writhing about in the mud, but we have value and he loves us. Now, one of the things or two of the things that he says about us is what I want to dwell on this morning. So I'm going to read from Matthew 5, just from verse 13 to verse 16. Very, very familiar passage of Scripture. You are the salt of the earth. You, not me. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world, you and me. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So to add to the list of things that I already mentioned, the, the really amazing, extraordinary claims that Jesus makes about us, we can add on the fact that he refers to us as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's quite impressive. We are not him. Yeah, he also declares in John that he's the light of the world. But he says, you are the light of the world as well, and you are the salt of the earth. 
And we bring nothing to God. We don't come to God with our our light or our saltiness and say, God, look what I've got. You should let me be on your team and give me something to do. We bring nothing to God. But when we come to God, he puts this status upon us as his children to bring salt and to bring light, to be salt, not only to bring it, but to be it, to be salt and to be light in the world. It's an incredible claim. The Romans used to have a saying that there is nothing more useful than sun and salt. Sun and salt. The two words in Latin sound very similar. There's nothing more useful than sun and salt. I think it's sol and sal are the, are the two words. The sun obviously provided heat and light and energy and salt was used as a preservative as we'll see later. In fact, salt was so valuable that the Roman soldiers sometimes, instead of getting paid with money, they got paid with salt. They were given an allowance of salt each month. And here's your Latin lesson for today. That allowance of salt was known as the salarium, because salt in Latin is sal, and that's where we get our word salary from. So your salary that you get at the end of the week or the end of the month is your salt allowance for you to go and buy salt. You heard it here first. Jesus says... Whenever he tells us that we are salt and we are light, just like the Romans said, there's nothing more useful than sun and salt. When Jesus says that we are the salt and that we are the light, he is saying there is nothing more useful on planet earth than the people of God. Now, if I made that up, that would maybe sound a bit arrogant, but I didn't make it up. I read it in a book, this book. And Jesus is the one who says it, not me. So if you have issues with it, go to him. He says, you are the salt, you are the light. There is nothing on earth more useful and more important than the people of God. And Jesus, by choosing these two things, reveals his understanding of what's going on in the world. The condition of the world, if it's just left to itself. Now, we're going to do a bit of physics. We did some Latin, we're going to do some physics Um, And in physics, there are laws of thermodynamics. And I think it's the second one that says entropy tends to increase. Now, what that means in common everyday language is things tend to become more disordered if they are left to themselves. Things tend to become more messy. Things tend to fall apart, to decay. Uh, If you want an example of that, look in the backseat of your car or for certain people in this church, your entire car. And you will see that over a period of time, if you neglect your car, then the car will get pretty messy and pretty disordered, particularly on the inside. Um, Look at the bedroom of a child when it's not tidy in day, and you will probably see a scene of disorder, chaos, um, just everything collapsing in on itself once again. Or if you want another example of how entropy increases and things tend to become mis- or disordered over time, look at that drawer in the kitchen. Do you know that drawer? Do you know that drawer? That drawer? Um, that drawer in the kitchen that seems to be the drawer where everything goes. No matter what it is, put it in that drawer. The drawer is tiny, but the amount of stuff that's in it would fill a 40-foot trailer. And whenever you go to get something out of that drawer, you just give up very, very quickly. That's an illustration of how things tend to become more disordered over time. And the world, if it's left to itself, will become more disordered 
over a period of time. I often think it's funny how some people who believe that, don't believe in intelligent design, they don't believe that there is a creator who brought order out of chaos and who created this world and brought design and structure. The same people who say that the world was just formed by a series of random uh, events happening that brought together all the order and structure of the world, they also have a law saying that things tend to become more disordered, which is like a complete contradiction, but that's another message. So what happens to the world, Jesus says, whenever you leave it alone, whenever it's just left to itself, he says it will rot. Right? Salt in the first century was used, yes, to give some flavor, but it was used mainly as a preservative to prevent food and particularly meat from spoiling, from rotting and going bad. And Jesus is saying by comparing his church, his people, to salt on the earth, he is saying that human existence has this tendency to rot whenever it's just left to itself. Now, we have, over recent decades, made a lot of progress on a lot of levels. And maybe a generation ago, progress was a, was a buzzword in the Western world. We were in an age of progress in technology and in medicine and many other areas. And I celebrate that. And I'm thankful for the technology that is working right now. And I'm thankful for the medicines that are being developed and distributed right now. Progress in those things is definitely true and apparent. But in terms of the human soul, is there progress? In terms of humanity itself and how people treat one another, when we look back on 2020 and even the first week of 2021, does our TV screen show us scenes of progress? the riots and racism and all sorts of horrendous things that we see are evidence not of, of progress in the human heart, but of humanity rotting and decaying in front of our very eyes. So Jesus says, left to itself, the world will rot. And the fact that he says that we are also the light of the world, he is telling us that left to itself, the world will go dark. People will drift into darkness. Isaiah writes about how truth falls in the streets. Truth has fallen in the streets. And left to itself, the world will veer away from truth and into darkness. What used to be regarded as wrong becomes regarded as right as long as it feels good. How dare you tell anyone that something is wrong? And what used to be regarded as right becomes regarded as old-fashioned. And what we do is we have these periods in history where we push God out of society. And the, the ironic thing is that, that the, the period in history when that really happened intentionally to push the light away and to push God out of the center of society, that period in history for some reason became known as the Enlightenment, even though it was a period of diving into darkness and pushing the light away. So Jesus says the world will rot. And the world will go dark unless something's done about it. That is the tendency of humanity left to itself. And the good news is that God has done something about it and is doing something about it. He will provide salt to stop the decay and he will provide light to dispel the darkness. 
And the wacky thing about it all is that the salt and the light is you and me. It's not a bunch of angels. It's, it's not um, a, a group of some super duper apostle Christian, you know, special ones. It's, it's us. We're the salt and light. We are the agents that God is, is putting into society to stop the decay and to stop the darkness. So let's look at the purpose of salt um, and the purpose of light and also the position of them uh, if they're going to be effective. So salt, as I've said already, is a preservative. Now, society, Jesus says, because we need salt, society must be going rotten. And again, you could listen to me and you could think, well, that's a very arrogant and nasty statement to look at the society around you and say that it's going rotten. But it is. It does not mean people are rotten. People are made in the image of God and their value, no amount of wealth can come close to the value of a human being. But at the very heart of society, there is a rot that is creeping in. There is uh, a decay that is creeping in. It comes from lots of things. Uh, a lot, uh, the source of a lot of it is traumatic relationships, broken relationships, uh, traumatic experiences in, in childhood and the like. And then the fallout of those things in later life can be the abuse of alcohol, the use of drugs, whatever, and, and then a cycle repeats with more bad relationships and another generation, and it just propagates and propagates. There is a rot and there is a decay in society, and if you can't see it, you haven't looked because it's there and it's so apparent. People put a gloss over it and make everything look fine, but at the heart of it, there is decay. And Jesus says our presence in society is to prevent that decay. We are the salt that is to hinder and prevent the decay of society. And also salt, another purpose of it is to enhance flavor. You put a little bit of salt in your food, just a little bit, I hope, but it brings flavor to your food. And we are to bring flavor to society. And the challenge then is, are we doing that? Do you bring flavor to your workplace? Do you bring flavor to your family? Do you bring flavor, if, if you're working on the high street, do you bring flavor to, to the other businesses that are around about you? Do you bring zest and flavor to the life of others? Do you enhance what's already there? How we act, how we speak, how we work, how we live is to bring flavor to the society around us. And another thing that salt does, it stops decay and it brings flavor. It also produces thirst. It's quite funny in our house over the last week or two, if there's been any ham eaten for dinner, and then the dogs get a wee bit of ham after dinner, and then all evening, every 20 minutes, the dogs are going to the water bowl to drink because the ham is salty and the salt has created thirst. If we as a church are functioning as the salt of the earth, then we will be creating a thirst in other people. Their experience and their encounters with us will cause them to, bring, to begin to thirst themselves for the living water that God brings. So that's the, the purposes of salt. And uh, we, we've got that it stops the rot. We've got that it brings flavor. And we've got that it produces thirst. Now, the position of the salt is important. Salt left in the salt shaker 
is absolutely useless. Right? There's no point in setting the salt shaker beside your dinner uh, and just looking at it. There's no point in the, the, the butcher or the fisherman just having salt, a bucket of salt. The salt in the salt shaker is absolutely useless. The salt has got to come out of the salt shaker. It's got to... Right, okay, thank you very much. It's very kind of you. Uh, the salt has got to come out of the salt shaker and go into the meat. So the picture would have been for a fisherman or for a butcher would have got the fish or the meat and put the salt all over the outside of it and then literally massaged the salt into the meat or into the fish with their thumbs. Now, that's a really powerful picture of what Jesus wants to do with us in society. He wants to take you and me and he wants to rub us into our towns into our neighborhoods, into our community. He wants to rub us in. He doesn't want us to stay in the salt shaker at a distance, enjoying ourselves, singing our songs, listening to our sermons, patting each other in the back, having a great time and having no influence. He wants to take us and ram us in, drive us, push us, massage us in. Let that image just just linger in you for a while that he wants to push you into your town into your neighborhood, into your community, so that you stop the decay by being among people. We are to permeate society. We must not withdraw. Church, we must not withdraw. When the church has just got its own little program going on behind closed doors, and we have you know, big invitations and banners, and we're saying, you know, come to church, come to us. Jesus is like, no, that is not my heart for you, my heart for you is you do the going. Do not ask people to make a huge cultural leap into your middle class Sunday morning church service. He says, you go. You get out there and you get rubbed into the meat of society. You bring the influence to them. Don't just invite them to come to church and think that you have done what Jesus called you to do. The way salt is made useless is interesting. Salt cannot lose its flavor unless it is mixed with impurities. That's what what will cause salt to no longer taste like salt and what will cause it to no longer function like salt as a preservative whenever impurities are mixed with it. And what would have happened in the first century if salt was impure and was no longer useful for flavor or for preservative purposes, then the salt would have been put on the roof of the house because the the function of it up there was that it would have caused the roof to become slightly more waterproof or to prevent damp from entering the roof and they would have put it on the roof and of course the roof is somewhere where people would have gone up also and walked about. So you've got this image of useless salt being thrown down and people walking around and the salt is trodden underfoot. Whenever salt becomes mixed with impurities, it is useless. And whenever the church starts to look like the world, the world looks at the church and says, you're no different from us. We want nothing to do with you. The church has got to be different in order to actually function. When we try to mimic the world and how we do things, that is counterproductive. It actually drives the world away and it smacks of desperation and a lack of real faith in the power of the Holy Spirit to change lives and communities. 
when the church is different from the world, the world is attracted to it. So do not bring in impurities in a desperate effort to be like the world around us. Be different. The purpose of light then, so that's the purpose of salt and the power or the the position of the salt that's got to be rubbed in and how the salt can be made useless. The purpose of light is to illuminate. That's obvious, isn't it? and, And to drive back the darkness. And we are to... We are the light of the world and that we are to push back the darkness of the lies that the enemy tells. We're to push back the despair that is in people's lives. And light not only illuminates and pushes back darkness, but another purpose of light is it guides people. It allows them to see where to go. And that's why light in the scriptures is frequently seen as a picture for truth. It's life and it is truth and it is illumination. Um, the Isaiah and then quoted by Jesus and Matthew writes about how the people sitting in darkness and the shadow of death saw a great light. The light, of course, was Jesus, but Jesus then confers that on us and says, you are the light of the world. Now, I got a new torch recently or a work lamp as it's known. Now, we don't do product placement here, but no doubt some YouTube algorithm will pick up this shade of yellow and, and come back at us within the next day or two. But I got myself a new light, and it's a really good light. It's really bright. It's really bright. Um, and, and it means I can do all sorts of stuff in the dark that I couldn't have done before. Uh, if it wasn't so cold, I could go outside and I could do some stuff at night outside in the dark because I've got my light. Now, if you were to say to me, Um, we've got a job that we need to do in the dark. I would say, well, that's great because I've got a new light and I'm looking for any excuse to use it. And I'll say, I'll come over to your house with my new light and we'll do this job that we need to do. And if I come into the room with my new light and set it in the room and then put a bucket over it, that would be a remarkably stupid thing to do. Because my light now is not providing any illumination. We cannot see. We're not pushing back in the darkness. And you would say to me, you're an absolute muppet for covering that light with a bucket. A light is meant to be on a stand. This is a particular part of this passage that really got me this week. Whenever Jesus says, Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone. And I felt like just the Holy Spirit was prompting and saying, what stands are you going to make as a church to put your light on? What stands are you going to make? Where are the places in society, in your town, in your sphere of influence that you're going to put the light onto so it gives light to everyone? It's not just your light. You know, we have an individual faith. We have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and a personal walk with him. But it's not just about you having your light so that you can navigate life. Jesus says, get that light up on a stand so that everyone can see it. Again, that that light that was just appeared miraculously on screen a moment or two ago, where I have that light, usually it's hanging from a ceiling. It's not on a floor. It's not in a corner. It's not under the bucket. 
It's hanging on a seat. I've got it up high so it'll provide as much light as possible. And Jesus is saying, how can you get your light up high? Where are you going to put it? Where are the stands that you're, you're going to put your light on so that it will shine? You know one of the buckets that I was thinking about that actually causes us to, to not shine is persecution and opposition. The first dozen verses of this chapter, the, the start of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks, particularly to the end of that section, the Beatitudes, he talks about persecution. And then he goes on to talk about salt and light. And I think there is a connection. And I think that the, the sequence is this. Don't allow opposition to cause you to hide your light. As Christians, we will face opposition. We will face persecution. And sometimes I think the tendency is to hide away. And the tendency is we don't want confrontation and we don't want difficulty and we don't want pain. And therefore we'll, we'll back off a little bit. And she says, no, don't hide your light because others are opposing you or persecuting you or making life difficult. Get your light on a stand. If you remember nothing else from this message, I want you to go away today and I want you to think, what stands can I put my light on? What are the things that I can do as an individual and what are the things that we can do corporately as a church to put our lights up onto? Jesus goes on then and, and he, he mentions, he brings in just one, one verse or one sentence, not even a verse. He just brings in this random sentence in the middle of it where he doesn't, you know, he's not talking about salt and he's not necessarily talking about light. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. A city on a hill. It, just, just, it doesn't seem to fit, but it does fit because a city is a community of lights. And whenever he talks about a city on a hill not being hidden in the context of light, what his hearers would have been thinking of was Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. Way back at the start of the lockdown, round about April, I remember doing a, a series of messages, and one of them was about Jesus saying that he is the light of the world. And we talked about the Feast of Tabernacles and how Jerusalem was lit up by these huge candles and could be seen from, from miles around because of its geographical position. That's what Jesus is talking about. He says, a city on a hill cannot be hid. It's a community of lights. A community of lights. It's not just one light. And this is really, really important. It's not just about you as a Lone Ranger Christian going around with your little super-powered work torch you know, shining light here, there, and everywhere. It's a community of lights together. There's a lot of memorable moments from the London Olympics in 2012. Um, there's, there were the moments when, when Mo Farah won the, the 5K and won the 10K. And just his, his smile and the way he celebrated, like no one who watched it will ever forget it. There was the moment when Jessica Ennis won the 800 meters, I think it was, and that was the final event of the heptathlon, and she took gold in that. These great, memorable moments. There was a moment when Tim Webb decided he was going to take up archery after watching some Olympic archery on TV. But one of the most memorable moments of the Olympics for me was when the work of a British designer called Thomas Heatherwick was unveiled for the world to see. Now, you've heard of Mo Farah, and you've heard of Jessica Annis, and you've heard of Tim Webb, but you might not have heard of Thomas Heatherwick. 
But his design, whenever it was unveiled, one billion people watched on TV and saw his design being unveiled. And you should watch it at some stage today on YouTube. It was the Olympic cauldron that every, every Olympics, there's a, there's a flame lit and it burns throughout the entire Olympic, the two weeks of the, of the, the games. But this guy produced something spectacular. It was lots and lots of small torches burning all on stems there were like it was like stems and then the petals of a flower and and each petal had had a a gas flame coming out of the end of it and as it was lit you you know it was they were all separated they it looked wonderful they were all separated and they were all burning and it was very pretty and you're like well that that's that's nice that's great well done but then something incredible happened and all of the individual torches all started to stand up together. They were all in these long arms, maybe the, the bottom ones, maybe 10, 12 feet long, and the, and the whole thing in all started to rise together so that all the individual flames, all the individual lights, then came together as one single blazing cauldron of light. And I can still remember watching it, and I remember thinking at the time, that's the church. That's the church. It's not just the individual pretty light. It's all those lights coming together and burning as one. That's the church. Do not get disconnected from the local community of faith because you will limit the effectiveness of your own light if you're just burning in isolation. You've got to be together. You've got to invest. You've got to have, Linda described last week, the, the courage, or she mentioned the courage of, of relationships and, and, and being vulnerable with one another and being together. And we need to let our lights all burn as one, a city of light, a community of lights, not just scattered individuals running around with torches. It was a wonderful, wonderful picture. You really should watch it. Another illustration could be the LEDs on a Christmas tree. One LED is not really that impressive. It's quite feeble. Um, but you put 700 of them or 1,000 of them on a, on a string and wrap them around a tree. And as people drive by, they can see it from, from a long distance away and it lights up the whole room. Your light on its own is, is good, but your light in community is powerful. Don't get isolated from community. Let your light shine. Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 2, 14 and 15. And he says to them, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. That picture of shining like stars is lovely, but back up to verse 14. Do everything without complaining and arguing. How we relate as a community dictates or determines how effective we will be at shining like stars in this depraved and crooked generation that we find ourselves in. You can't do this on your own. It's unbiblical to try to shine your light on your own. Be part of a greater, larger community. 
And what is it? I'm nearly done. What is it that needs to be seen, Jesus says? Because he later on in the Sermon on the Mount, he criticizes the, the religious guys who do their acts of righteousness to be seen. Chapter 6, 1, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Don't do your giving in a way that draws attention to yourself. Don't do your praying in a way that draws attention to yourself. Don't do your fasting in a way that lets the world and his wife know that you're fasting. It's, it's, it's not about, when I say get a stand to get up onto, it's not a pedestal for you so that people will think more of you. Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. But he doesn't stop there. He says that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The whole purpose of the exercise is not so that people can see me or see you. The purpose is that we let our light shine. The light goes on the pedestal. The light goes on the platform. It's Jesus that we make a fuss about. And the outcome has got to be not, oh, look at that person, aren't they so good because they've made such a fuss about Jesus. It's look at Jesus, glorify God. That God gets the glory, that Jesus gets the attention, that people see the light, that the light bearer themselves, the person carrying the light is not the focus. God is the one who is the focus. We put the light up so that people can see our good deeds generosity, kindness, how we live, how we love people, how we relate, the fact that we don't grumble and complain in Christian community and therefore we shine like stars in this generation. People are watching and when they see that, when they see that, that truly beautiful community, they will want it. When they see our good deeds and how we live, we're not saved by good deeds. We're not saved by works but we are, there are good deeds that are prepared for us to do once we are followers of Jesus. John Stott said that whenever the meat goes bad, do you blame the meat? No. You ask, where was the salt? And when a room goes dark, do you blame the room? No. You ask, where was the light? It has struck me watching Washington this past week uh, where crowds of people rioted and caused chaos and disorder and really demonstrated a rottenness at the core of society. A lot of those people actually would have identified with Christianity and with the church. I don't think they really have an authentic understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. But it terrifies me that those those people claim to be Christians and yet Instead of stopping the rot in society, they're adding to it. Instead of bringing light into the darkness, they're creating more darkness and more confusion. That is genuinely very worrying. If a society is going bad, the question has got to be, where is the church? Where's the church? Daryl Johnson writes that the welfare of any city the welfare of any town, the welfare of Tandragee, the welfare of any city is directly related to the health of the church in that city. Stop cursing the darkness and light a fire instead. The welfare of the city is directly related 
to the welfare or the health of the church in that city. We can't do nothing. Too too much of Western society is going to rot because the church has built stunning buildings where they stay indoors with impeccable uh, seating and, and acoustics and lighting and everything just beautiful and in they go and close the doors and have a great time. It's not working because society around is rotting and rotting and rotting. That is not an effective way to do church and to be salt and light. We cannot shut ourselves in and ignore it. We have got to do something. I did something a few weeks ago and a guy, not many people were were aware of it, it was a very minor thing, but a guy who talked to me and was aware of it said, that basically said, that was you, wasn't it? And I said, aye, it was me. And he said, I knew that you wouldn't be able to just sit and let that happen without doing something about it. The church should not be able to sit in society and let it rot without doing something about it. If we are not salt, then we're not followers of Jesus. It's not like there are a class of Christians who are the the salty class. You know, are you salt or non-salt? No, there's not a salty class. There's not a particularly lit class. We are all salt and light. There is no option to not be. We can't just ignore what is going on around us. We have to bring change. And I would just ask as, as I finish, what do you long for when COVID is over and when some semblance of normality returns? What is it in, in the context of being a Christian, what is it that you are longing for? And there are several things that I, that I long for. I long to worship without a mask on and without, without concerns. But that's not the primary thing that I'm longing for. I, I long to, to be together again around God's word. I long to be able to pray together in the same room, on our knees together, being able to actually put your hand on somebody's shoulder when you're praying for them. I long for that. So there's, there's a lot of things that I, I long for. I long for our meals, our communion meals, when we sit down and take a couple of hours and eat together and remember Jesus as we do that. Loads of things that I long for. But way, way up in that list has got to be, I long for the church to be salt and be light again, to be out there, to be rubbed into the fabric of society, to be carrying the light down into the darkness. If that's not in your thinking as you look forward to the end, hopefully soon, of this thing, if that's not in your thinking, I ask you, I challenge you to realign your thinking along to the thinking of Jesus. Because I bet you Jesus right now, if he was to, to list or to state one thing that he wants his church to do, the moment, if this was to end in a moment, and I know it won't end in a moment, but let's say there was a moment, there was a day when it was just declared to be over. Coronavirus is over. Go back to doing what you want to do as normal. And then Jesus was to show up and give us one instruction. I don't think the instruction would be to sing. I don't think it would be to preach. And I don't think it would be to have a meal together. I think he would say instantly and with urgency, get into the world with the gospel. Get into society and be salt and be light because the fallout of this, once the medical, biological fallout has happened, the fallout after that will go on and on and on and society will not need people who can sing 
I love praising God. You've watched me do it. You know I love it and I long for it. But society will need salt and it will need light. And that's what I think Jesus is really telling us in these days that he wants us to be. We need to get his perspective and get his priorities. Jesus himself was the salt of the earth. In his incarnation, he was the salt that was rubbed into the rotting meat of this world to stem the decay. He was the ultimate salt. And he was the light of the world. He was set on a hilltop. Like Jerusalem, like that lit city, he was set on a hilltop, crucified for all the world to see. And at the same time, a fire was lit that has never gone out. A beacon was lit on that hilltop. The light of the world crucified bringing light to the entire world, hope and new life for everyone. And I would challenge you in these days, stay close to him and allow him to make you really, really salty and allow him to to light your lamp so that you are clean lit so that whenever the, the, the green light is given and we can get back in among our towns and our societies, that we are salty and that we are lit and that we bring the presence of Jesus in among those people. That's me done. Thanks very much for, for listening. I hope that's given you a little bit of food for thought. Um, I'll just pray and bless you as we, as we close.